once came another man. Style of tall. Go ahead. I'll be honest. I, I played a very high standard. Young uh, superstar. Give some lessons. Determination. Was extremely, extremely Welcome to the Chess Underground. Eccentricities, peculiarities, and theoretical novelties. And I felt be down in flames. I felt my style. I felt a sense of my style and skills. I only do so. From a distance. Yeah, so I'm really glad we finally have Julia, the Julia Rios, on the show <laughs> because now, like, the completionist aspect of my, of my like, um, personality is complete. Right? We had the first half of Chessfield's Pod on the show, JJ, and now we have Julia. So the top half now with me is the, the co-host, and yes, the top half. Right. So now I feel like um, I don't know. There's something very satisfying about about completing that. Right. Who doesn't like top energy? <laughs> As a top, I actually really like bottom energy. No, well, I'm so lost here. <laughs> this is the. Experience. It's okay, Pete. We'll show you later. Can you have? Can you have both? <laughs> is that possible? <laughs> yeah, it can be worse. Yes, you can. We talk about that. You should listen to episode eight of Chess Feels. We actually we answer that exact question just for you, Pete. With me. Okay, very good. I have to also, listen to episode eight. I, I don't think I've heard that one yet. Hashtag real quick. Uh, I remember reading something by Akash in response to it. Like, wow, I'm a switch or something like that. And I'm like, bro, having a woman, like letting a woman be on top of you once, like is not, does not constitute you being a switch. <laughs> like that was just my first thought. I don't know why, but. No, Akash seems confused about that in general. Um, once Akash and I were, chatting on his twitch stream and he referred to me in the chat he, he was like hey everyone go check out julia rios's podcast chess feels uh she's the bottom half and i was like whoa oh gosh i can understand that you might not remember but come on like does that feel right to you he was like i don't know <laughs> that's yeah that's that's a good point how could you mix that up no for sure 100 percent unacceptable yeah. Go, Paul. Two questions. One, are you currently at a racetrack? And two, how far away from you, Mike, <laughs> are you? <laughs> oh, uh, relatively far here. This is better, maybe. Oh, yes. There's some dude outside that's like. Are you, are you smoking over. outside, Go, Paul? No, not at all. Windows are closed. Yeah, that's my other question. So, Go, Paul, off frequently, or used to anyway. I don't know. It's been so long, but frequently took smoke breaks during a chess game. Yeah. Does that help you? Like, you know, I was talking about when my, when my booty hits the chair, I immediately get that game face on for chess mode, right? Do you reset when you go and take a smoke break or like, is that like what's happening there internally? Is it a thought break? Is it a mental break or what? Uh, yeah. Something to break the monotony, you know, um, like what Blumenfeld, his technique was to, uh, what, write down the move before you play it. Right. And then you, you, um, you just reassess it. And then 
if you like it, you're good to go. But like the whole point is to break your concentration a little bit, just to avoid like some sort of tunnel vision, you know? Interesting. But also go, well, I don't know if you're yeah. going to say this, but obviously nicotine is a stimulant. So when you take I'm a smoke braid, <laughs> Hey, <laughs> that's my line. <laughs> I just said that to go Paul recently, but, um, I wouldn't be surprised if it actually really does help. Eh, no, it's, I, I have to stop. Like I've, I've quit like a few times before, but it's like, ultimately it's no good, you know, you're cutting off oxygen in your brain. But I will say this as somebody, Pete, like you, you'll totally like vibe with this. You know, I want to spend as little time at the chess tournament as possible. <laughs> so like me having a smoke break is me getting the, the mother away from this terrible place. It's interesting. You mentioned that because yeah, I mean, you're right. So like, why, why is that the case? Why are we interested in this game where we want to spend as little time at the actual tournament as we possibly can? What, like, what's the draw or the appeal there? Like, I want to do this hobby and get really good at it and spend like hours and hours of my life practicing and improving. Very obnoxious opinions. And have very obnoxious opinions about this hobby. Right. Yes. And share them with the world. But yet, when it comes to like going to the actual competition, I want to be there like as little time as humanly possible. What's that about? Can I call uh, you Dr. Julia? Are you Dr. Julia now? <laughs> it's an interesting question. Um, I did defend my PhD dissertation in June this year. Mm-hmm. Um, but technically, since I am a clinical PhD student, they don't actually award us our doctorate until we finish our clinical residency or our internship. So that's what I'm doing this year. I'm doing clinical work full time. Um, so even though I've already completed everything I need for the PhD, um, I won't actually have it in my hands until May 2023. So no. So this is kind of like the equivalent of like a candidate master title or something. No, that's not, no, <laughs> yeah, no, that's a trick question, Julia. Not a title. <laughs> it's not a test. Um, uh, but I could also, put it in my Twitter bio and who would who would double check me? Wait, would you put CM Julia Rios or Dr. Julia Rios in your Twitter bio? Oh god. Mm, good question. I'd probably put Dr. Julia Rios, comma, PhD, comma, GM. Very nice. For go Paul Menon. <laughs> For a while I had CEO of Chessfields <laughs> in my bio to see if anyone, including JJ, would notice and no one said anything to me so i realized you can actually just write anything in there i think that goes for like all of twitter though right you can just write anything in there all of the internet maybe actually it's okay i'll play doctor uh, later but uh, anyway uh, let us uh, go back to this uh, chess tournament subject <laughs> <laughs> yeah we need to know so what is that what is that about why do we show up for dedicate a lot of time and energy to this um this event it, it's an event right we choose to attend the event it's yeah. not compulsory and yet we want to be like actually physically there or at least for me and obviously gopal we want to be there as little as humanly possible so i have a i actually got a really good rationale uh for this like from um or explanation from one of the parents of one of my students and keep in mind like that's also another reason, right? You want to avoid like your students and their parents. Cause you don't really like care about their games while they're going on. You want to be, you have to be like a bird of prey, so to speak, you know, when you're at a chess tournament, but he I said, also think, no, that's a very good point. I also think that like, there's an element where there's really nothing you can do to like help them in the middle of an event too. 
And I think they don't understand that, you know, that they want to come ask you a bunch of questions, but it's like, you know, now you, there's nothing I can do to help you at this moment. Did we lose Gopal? Uh, no, no, no. So what were you going to say? You also think what? Oh, there's, there's an element of like, you can't really help them in that moment either. You know what I mean? Like you help them beforehand, you help them with the preparation, but during the event, it's almost better if they just view you as like a ghost where, you know, you just have to focus on you and play. I mean, people have called me a phantom the way I disappear in and out of the tournament hall, which (laughs) I I like, We'll, we'll maybe unpack that in a second. But one of the parents of my students now, somebody who I wouldn't try to avoid, one of the very few people, uh, he said, well, dude, it's like you're the hot girl at the bar. I'm like, wow, I never thought of it like that. Because like, everyone wants your attention. Right, or yeah, because you're one of the higher rated players, right? Everybody wants to talk to you or or like, you know, some like, I don't know, low rated players trying to tell me about their game. And like with vague descriptions, like, yeah, so he took with with G and then I pushed I, I pushed F. Like, shut up. Cares. <laughs> We're gonna have to edit like every sentence. Go for it. Is it Gobal, is that how is that what you think hot girls are thinking at the bar when literally any person comes up and tries to talk to them? Yes. <laughs> the hot girl is, is thinking, true? I don't care whether you took with with a G or or E. Well, yeah. most men in my experience yourself. don't actually know where the G pawn is, so I got you. That actually makes a ton of sense. Pete. I know where the G pawn is, and I would also say it's the best pawn to use as your secret queen. Sorry. I get silence because nobody knows what the heck I'm talking about. <laughs> I mean, I'm thinking like there's what that game capped pawn. That's like the like when they used to give odds in chess games. You you had to like deliver mate with that piece or whatever. Oh, interesting. Yeah, secret queen is just one of the pawns at the start is secretly a queen. And you don't have to tell your opponent. And you just like write it down on a piece of paper so you can prove you're not just like changing it on the floor. Pete, are you ever going to tell me what 24 game chess is or? Oh, so yeah. So every every month, Gopal and I, we have uh, a segment like kind of at the end where we match up like two hypothetical figures. And they could be real or fake, you know, like fictional or, or real people in a 24 game chess match. And we discuss who we think would win. Mm. And this month, Gopal has a suggestion that I actually, it was from one of his students that it's I really from Kevin Skull. From Kevin? From Kevin Skull. Fisticuffs. Edit, edit that part out. Oh, okay. Fisticuffs. From, from Dr. Because, Skull. Fisticuffs. Because Julia, yes, because Julia knows. Oh, gotcha. Okay. I actually like the suggestion. I think it would be fun, particularly because it gives both Gopal and I a chance to rant about the Big Lebowski image. Oh yeah, have you seen this? So yeah, he, what did he say? The Big Lebowski versus whom? It was the dude, the dude. from Big Lebowski versus Ricky Bobby. <laughs> that is kind of funny, right? Like I think that would be a fun matchup. The Big Lebowski. What go ball? Have you seen this movie? The Big Lebowski? Yes, of course. What do you think about it? I've seen both these movies. Believe it or not. What do you think about the Big Lebowski? Oh, just as a movie? I mean, I really liked it when I was 20. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) Exactly. I haven't thought about it in five years, but... Exactly. The dude abides? Is that that like one of the big Lebowski names? 
Jesus Christ. Yeah. Yeah, that's one of the things. Oh, oh. Gopal, you're making our editing job so difficult. Sorry, I'm just you know, uh, so influenced by the Chesterfields podcast right now. I understand. It's tough to get out of that vibe, right? We have one of the two Chesterfielders <laughs> on, our, on with having us. Having a bad day, we should have a saying like, you could snap into a Stover's. I'll be extra wholesome, Pete, to cancel out Gopal's yeah, riffraff. Yeah, okay. Wholesome starting now. Let's go. Okay. Not sure how that works, but okay. Sounds good, Gopal. It's like sitting your butt at the chessboard, Pete. You just shift into you a, become oh. you become extra wholesome the moment you sit down at my therapy desk. Yeah, actually, I would say nothing is more wholesome than the idea of snapping into a Stouffer's. Right? Is that what Gopal said? It's <laughs> very yeah. It's very like family, you know, mm-hmm. uh, family, whatever. Right, like just uh, hearing the the name Stouffer's, you picture like polo shirts like near an oven on Thanksgiving or something. I picture how great America is. Totally. We're so free. Some some like red and orange leaf wreath over the... That warm, loving, nuclear family. Definitely. Yeah. Something that definitely has not been co-opted by any untoward websites, for sure. (laughs) Ever. And how cis and straight like we all are, you know? (laughs) So I want to get back. I think there's an interesting question here. No, seriously. I, I, what we were talking about earlier, like, why do we do this where we go to a tournament? We dedicate all this time to like getting better at chess. Then we go play a tournament. We show up. And the first thought that enters our head is like, we don't want to be here. The, is it really just like the, I guess, for lack of a better term, like the hot girl at the bar syndrome? Julia, your thoughts? Right. So my is first, that even a thing? <laughs> my first reaction would be, wouldn't that make you want to go to the tournament? Right? Like don't hot girls go to the bar to kind of be admired and try to find the not other hottest? Being, not myself being a hot girl, I don't know. <laughs> Me also not being a hot girl, I don't know. <laughs> Me I like, being a hot girl, I like <laughs> to be left the hell alone. So do I. That kind of sounds right, like intuitively. I think Gopal's take sounds right. I mean, it's got to be exhausting being a hot girl. Well, it is being one, you know. (laughs) I mean, that is how I feel when I go to the bar. I only go to the bar with my friends, and then I only want to talk to my friends. And maybe that is kind of how I feel about chess. So obviously I haven't um, played in over-the-board tournaments like you guys have. But I feel like a lot of my aversion to playing a lot of in person over the board is is honestly kind of the discomfort that I imagine being in that setting because everyone describes it like you guys as terrible. Um, I haven't really heard anyone say anything that's really encouraged me to spend more time in that space. I wonder if that's like a particularly uh, American phenomenon, like our, our OTB mm. tournaments elsewhere in the world, uh, like that unenjoyable to attend. I will say there have been like, some over-the-board tournaments here and there that I have enjoyed going to. Sure. And what I mean, has made those feel more enjoyable for you, Pete? Well, <clears throat> honestly, all the ones that came to the top of my head were very small events. They were like round robins, like six or eight player round robin. Mm-hmm. So maybe it's just like I don't... Um, as opposed to a Swiss. Yeah, as opposed to like a large open, open. 
right? Right, exactly. Where there's like yeah. 800 people in the same room. Oh, God. And all the parents. Literally like, my nightmare. Over the, the pairing sheets for hours on end, even though yeah. nothing changed. Everybody's right on top of oh, one another. Yeah. And, and there's like delays. And, it, you know, it feels like when you're playing in one of those events, it feels like the round never starts on time when you want it to, like when you're like ready and feel sharp. And it always starts on time, like when you're running late, like when your last game just finished and you have to like go get food real quick before the next round. Well, I was going to say that that's like part of the really unpleasant experience of the American Swiss, right? There are so many rounds crammed into into a given day, right? Or there could be. And that's why I thought it was a really interesting point that you brought up, like, is that a uniquely American phenomenon? Yeah, I mean, it doesn't look like Europeans like disenjoy. Is that a word? I just invented a word. Do not enjoy, unenjoy, whatever. It doesn't look like they're having a particularly bad time when you see them playing. Maybe it's just the miracle of photography. Or maybe it's that they have a lot of good Stouffer's marketing executives <laughs> for their nuclear chess families. They have free lasagna at every tournament hall. In Europe, is that a thing? Free lasagna? Come play chess in Europe, free lasagna at every <laughs> tournament hall. Free Stouffer's lasagna at every tournament hall. Every person in Europe listening right now is having the same cringe moment that you were describing earlier, Pete. Oh my gosh, you're right, they are. Yes. Well, it's okay. They're just not used to the wholesome family goodness of, Sto- of a Stouffer's meal. I really <laughs> don't know how this Stouffer's joke... Uh, Where did it come from? <laughs> ...exploded the way that it has. Okay, this is where it came from. <laughs> it came from a joke that JJ and I were making um, about the Chessable staff. Oh my God, let me try to remember. Oh, okay, it, I'm, I'm not going to Chessable, correct me if I'm it. wrong, but Chessable sponsors chess fields, right? He, is that correct? Somehow, yes. Okay. You got to get Stouffer's on that bandwagon too. We're really trying. We're not trying that hard and we're not doing a very good job, but we are tweeting the word Stouffer's a lot. Gopal and I were trying to get Vitamix brand as a sponsor. We're a really big fan of their high-performance blenders. I don't know if you've ever used one of those. Oh, I actually own a high-performance Vitamix and use it on a near-daily basis in my home. You can blend like almost anything with those. Here, I'm sending... Yeah, I'm sending you the meme that it was based off of. It was a meme that... No, I know the uh, meme. JJ's already sent me the meme. Don't send it to me, Gopal. I don't want to look at it right now. Of course. She's in her work office, Gopal. You can't send her memes like that. Hey, Pete, do you remember the one that... I can't find it anymore, but we were like in fits uh, with this one. It was like, close your Chipotle Mexican grill hole reactionary. Why are those so funny? So basically, that like there was a, a whole the series capitalism of the font. Yes, there was there was a whole series of memes where basically it was taking like you know like a like a phrase like you know close your pie hole or whatever, but they were just <laughs> slapping they were just slapping like a, a logo of a company, usually like a chain, <laughs> usually like a chain restaurant on there for for like no reason, um, and it was really funny for some reason. I don't I know what like- made that so entertaining. I feel like Stouffer's would actually lend itself really well to that meme. Close your Stouffer's hole. I did. Um, oh, man, Close your Stouffer's frozen lasagna hole reactionary. 
Yeah. In in line with another meme format, I did text JJ this morning and said, uh, with no context, she feels up my chest until I stopper her lasagna. Um, and nice. JJ really enjoyed that, but I was too shy to tweet that in public. <laughs> There's something about stofers that's inherently funny. I, I actually completely I agree. agree. Yeah, I do, hundred percent. Why? Why? What is so entertaining about like stofers as a concept? Because it represents this like weird like version of Americana or something. I don't know. And also, there's okay. I think there's something about stofers that. I don't know. Maybe this is just me. Okay, don't. This is not. Uh, this is not objective fact. And anyone who knows me listening to this is going to immediately recognize my bias. But there's something about stofers that, to me, is so inherently disgusting. <laughs> like it just grosses me out. But oh, I, don't I mean, know. what's so, wrong yeah. with it? It's just like pre-made frozen, like ground meat in, <laughs> in a <laughs> box. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Julia, what about that? Then you can just like what what what's wrong with that? You don't like your pre-made frozen ground <laughs> meat in a box that you can take out and microwave and eat in like three minutes. You know what yeah, doesn't sound appealing? Like the Americans perfect for the American Swiss tournament. Exactly. There's something about it that's so hedonic. I don't know. It's just funny and we all know it. Wow, so, that's that's a great way to put it. I got to tell this story and then I just want you guys to imagine at the proper moment replacing this with a fro- uh, Stouffer's frozen lasagna, <laughs> you know, TM. Okay. So we're at the US, uh, I think back then it was called the Amateur Team Midwest or something. It wasn't called Amateur Team North. Maybe it was. I don't know. We we're at the US Amateur Team in Chicago and our team is kind of standing around. It's maybe like, five minutes before the start of the next round, we've all been done for a while. Oh no. And this guy comes out from the playing hall, having just finished his game and, um, he secured the draw. So that was enough for his team to win two and a half and one and a half. And he's like, really like excited and nervous. I don't know how to describe it other than just like, you know, that feeling you get almost like you're on like a, like a high or something right after you win a game or you've done what you were trying to achieve you're kind of jittery and you've got the shakes or whatever. And so he comes out and his whole team is there. They're kind of like slapping him on the back and saying, Hey, great job holding the draw, whatever. And one of his, one of his teammates. Um, and, and first of all, he's like, he's got his like shirt tucked in. Okay. Um, I'm trying to set the scene here. He's got like white, um, like shin high socks t- into his Reeboks um, <laughs> and like some khaki shorts and some, and so his teammates are like, well, you know, hey, hey, Todd, do you want to go get some lunch? I don't know the guy's name. I'm just using Todd because that sounds better. <laughs> Should we go get some lunch before the next game? And he looks at his teammate like his teammate is insane and has just suggested like the like rating the best deal or something. Okay. And he's like, lunch? Oh, by golly, we've only got time for an apple. And and he like hikes his shorts like almost up like he as he's saying he it's he like pants up for that yes he grabs the top of his khaki shorts and like pulls them up like almost to his nipples as he as he exclaims this with fury at his teammate and his teammate is just like you know he has that look like deer in the headlights look like what just happened and all four of us are standing there watching the situation <laughs> trying as hard as we can not to laugh out loud. <laughs> <laughs> that would have been the perfect moment for we've only got time for a 
Stouffer's frozen <laughs> lasagna. Wait, <laughs> we have time to eat an entire yeah. family-sized Stouffer's right. lasagna. We can Get microwave it in the room. The room has a microwave, guys. We can just go up there and microwave it and get back down here for the next round. Uh, uh, so actually, in a future year, our team name for the Midwest Amateur Team or North Amateur Team, whatever they changed it to, our team name in a future year was We Only Have Time for an Animal. <laughs> <laughs> that's so funny. Yeah. And then nobody got it except us, and that's all that meant. That's the best kind of joke. Oh, you guys will like this team name. JJ and I were kind of spitballing the other day. And this was right in the wake of the Chess Essentials podcast ranking that came out. Congratulations, guys. For Congratulations, fellow award-winning <laughs> syndicated podcast host. Yeah. And if you don't remember those uh, group rankings, this is group A right here. Oh, that's true. Yes, we have yeah. three three persons from Group A. So JJ and I were planning. We gotta we gotta play USAT North and just with Gopal and be Group A. So Pete, I think you might have to join us as well. Oh no. Mm. Okay. Mm. Yeah. okay. <laughs> it's so right. it's so vague. No one will know but us. No, yeah, no one would get that. That's a good point. That would be a fun team too, actually. I was sharing. Uh, I was sharing the results of that blog post with my partner and he was so confused. He was like, isn't perpetual chess the really good professional one with that guy you've been listening to for years? And I was like, yep, his name right next to right next to ours, baby. It's <laughs> proof that you were Ben Johnson. And so am I. <laughs> we are Ben Johnson. JJ. Yeah. It's interesting. When we first started doing podcasts from US Chess, it was like Three years ago now, maybe, maybe longer. And let me think about that. Four years ago, almost. Wow. And there weren't very many podcasts out. And I remember Dan Lucas, our, our uh, communications director, he, he approached me and asked if I'd be interested in doing one. And I was like, how do you make a, how do you make a chess podcast, right? Like you can't show moves. You can't show a board. I know. And so I was thinking like, you know, what makes an interesting, how do you talk about chess in, interesting, in an interesting way? How do you speak about it in an interesting way? And fortunately, I, I know Gopal, so that like made life a lot easier. Aww. I like struggled through three seasons, and then I brought Gopal on for a few months, and everybody started loving the show. <laughs> Who can resist Gopal Menon? Not nice. I. So, Gopal, um, yes. we were supposed to give you a therapy session today. How are you feeling? Do you feel therapized? Uh, yeah, you know. Um... You know, just a heads up, like if I if I feel a little, uh, you know, like I'm shutting down, um, you know, you I've had your sofas and it's settling in. Well, well, no, I've I've, de I've developed uh, some sort of trust issues uh, due to a few uh, non-sexual incidents that occurred when I was a child. So let's just, uh, you, you know, in case I shut down, like I start making the window shut down noise, just. You know, take that with a grain of salt. I know, Gopal, you've already admitted to to me and JJ on our podcast that your two modes of response are shutting down or shutting down again, but in red. Oh, yes. Did I say that? <laughs> yeah, you absolutely did. Oh, that's that's why I'm such a cute boy. Well, I'll that's, do my best, Gopal, to open you back up. Thanks. Let's do it. 
I would say that's surprising to me because normally I also see another mode of Gopal, which is just like um, extreme extrovert Gopal. Unhinged. Yes. Right. <laughs> yes. So it's interesting that shutdown and, and shutdown in red were what you went with. <laughs> Only during times of conflict, Pete. No extreme extrovert. Uh, no, 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 no. Kind of like, you know, those, those animals in the wild that have like the defense mechanism of like throwing their, their gigantic feathers to the, to the air or whatever. You know, it's interesting. You bring that up. One of my, uh, like openers on those dating app thingies was, uh, like to always give like animal facts, like Pete, you've seen, you've seen some of those, like the ones about possums before possums became like fashionable. Um, wait, possums are fashionable. Yes, but that's according to my wife, I live under a rock, so like I'm I'm like way behind on all of this stuff. But well, anyway, possums are fashionable, and and so is tucking in your shirt now, right? And Stouffer's lasagna, apparently. Stouffer's but, lasagna. Um, anyway, you can tuck uh, your shirt in, but only if you're wearing khakis and they're pulled up almost to your nipples. Is that right, Pete? To your nipples, yes. I don't write the rules. I just report. <laughs> just, I just report on what i see <laughs> i just observe the fashion rules at chess tournaments for some reason and copy them rigidly well here before we get back to therapy i just have to finish this thought hashtag real quick so one of my least successful uh openers with regards to animal facts on dating apps was um the fact that uh a quokka are you guys familiar with uh Quokka? Yes, of course. Yeah, that was also so, my nickname in college. Right. <laughs> they throw they throw their is it because you throw your young while evading predators as a <laughs> means of self-defense? <clears throat> uh, I actually have no idea where that came from. So they do uh, that? Yes, they do. That's pretty impressive. I mean, here you go, I eat my babies. <laughs> I mean, also I don't know. Survival why. instinct. Yeah, that's fair. I kind of, yeah, I could see why that's probably one of my least successful ones, but you know, whatever, it's something different. Like, what am I supposed to say to you? Hi? Like, no. So speaking of fashion, I know, so chess feels like they have like some kind of interesting chess t-shirts and stuff, right? <laughs> but here's, here's my question though. Do any of you guys own like a... And I don't want to like uh, poo-poo on the chess feels t-shirts, but like a legit chess t-shirt, meaning like one that you got from like a chess tournament in like 2005 or something, you know? Dead silence. I was in fifth grade in 2005. <laughs> I have chess t-shirts from when I was in fifth grade. <laughs> okay. <laughs> one I, of them, I, my favorite one <laughs> has a picture of a knight on it. <clears throat> and the knight... Um, at various places on the night is a different, very bright color. So like it goes, it starts off as like bright red. And by the time you get to the bottom, it's like neon green, you know, and it goes through all the different phases, you know, like yellow, orange, whatever, and blue and all those other colors. And it says wild horses on it. <laughs> it's probably one of my favorite t-shirts ever. That's amazing. And I think it's from like, I think it's from like the, the like central Illinois grade school championship, like 1997 or whatever. That's amazing, Pete. I I feel like I would have also held on to that type of apparel, but I didn't start playing chess until <laughs> I was a little bit older than 11. So you missed out on all of the really cool like chess t-shirts. I did. Um, but along those same lines, the oldest t-shirt that I own and still wear regularly, it's in my 
normal rotation is from first grade when my dad took me to a Spice Girls concert and bought me the t-shirts that are adult sizes. So he got me like the smallest one, but it still went down past my knees and I just loved it. And now it fits me great. So. Wow. That is actually super impressive. I thought I had like some very old pieces of clothing in my, in my closet. I was like, okay, I'm going to win this one hands down, (laughs) but I don't have anything. I like, I have some from like, high school which for me was like 20 years ago that i still wear (laughs) see that's impressive see my plot like i you these days my wardrobe is basically like i wear all black especially on days that i'm going to a chess tournament or pool tournament but uh pete and i we devised this strategy because we want to dress as if we're attending a funeral Mm. for our opponents oh Um, okay But also, like, when I have a black shirt on, um, just as, like, my old roommate would say, it's it's almost like I have a shirt on, leave me alone. You know what I mean? Because it's black, Gopal? Well, because it's just a shirt and it doesn't have anything on it. Right. It's like there's nothing for you to chat with me about. Right. Exactly. Like like to read and react to. I feel like when I wear all black, it comes off as kind of like emo goth chick, then they're still fodder for too much conversation. Ah, yeah, that's true. Yeah, you could still be fetishized like that, huh? (laughs) Yeah, I can't win. Yeah, no, seriously, tell me about it. I guess, yeah, people don't think I I have an emo phase, maybe because I'm brown, but (laughs) little do they know. No, you are so emo. Who would not be able to see that immediately? I don't know. Pete, when was your emo phase? Um, well, one of the school, uh, one of the shirts that I still have from high school is an insane clown posse shirt that I got at a concert. Amazing. I don't know if you know them. Pete, that's amazing. Okay, who doesn't know ICP? (laughs) I don't know. There's probably some people out there. We would have to immediately end the recording. That would be unacceptable. So they actually came and played in Peoria, um, at this old theater called the Madison, which is like this, um, uh, I mean, I don't know how to describe it unless you're there. It's just like an... Uh, it was magical. A madhouse. Um, yeah. Had to be there. Had to be there. Had to be there. So I guess that was probably as close as I got to an emo phase. Um, Can I ask you, Pete, what chess openings were you partial to during your most emo phase? Are there emo chess openings? Oh, that's a fantastic question. Thank you. Hmm. Um. Well, at that time, I was playing like uh, I was still playing king pawn at that time. So, oh, so I would play Sicilian player. Huh? <laughs> no, I was an open Sicilian player. So I would play directly <laughs> into the open Sicilian with white. Although I knew like almost no theory, so my 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 way of handling <laughs> at that time I would have been rated like fifteen or sixteen hundred, and I knew no theory. So all I knew was you go e four c five knight f three. They do whatever. D4, you hope they take it. You take back with the knight. You hope they take it. <laughs> right. Then you bring out you bring out your other knight. <clears throat> you bring out your white square bishop and you castle and then you go for <laughs> Pete, that is amazing. That is so likable. What an endearing way to play chess. I, I feel like you've already won me over. That's incredible. That was my that was my white opening repertoire against Cillian. Against E4, E5, I played, of course, the Scotch Gambit. Of course. Um, Although every now and then I would play King's Gambit because uh, one of my first ever 
uh, chess teachers, Mike Leali from Peoria, who, by the way, still plays King's Gambit to this day in almost every game. Mm. Um, he played King's Gambit, so I would sometimes play King's Gambit. Natch. Yeah, that's kind of interesting for an emo uh, phase, eh? I, I mean, I, like I said, that's as close as I got to an emo phase. I, I think it fits that flavor of emo, ICP. Ah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Something that's a little more... I don't you know, know, I think about it. Male. I think about it at that time, like, um, like grunge music was really big. So, like Nirvana, yeah. Pearl, Pearl Jam, like Soundgarden, like that. Those those groups. If you like, go back and listen to the music. They're a lot more emo than they like purported to be at the time. Oh, for sure. You know, like they wanted to be like these rockers, but they were actually like pretty emo. So maybe that was my emo phase. But yeah. my openings were the same then anyway. My openings basically didn't change until my freshman year of college. So I played mm. E4 and just like make it up after E4. So you, <laughs> move, you move the pawn to E4 and then you just make it up after that. Amazing. I, I played that until I was 18. And then when I was 18, I went to college and I started learning like real openings. Okay. I'm stealing that from you, Pete. From now on, people, from now on when people ask me what opening I play, I'm going to say verbatim E4. And then I just make it up. I mean, honestly, that's what I did. I didn't really study any theory. I knew like the, oh, and with black, with black, that's not true. With black, I played the Slav and I don't know why. I just like found it randomly in, <clears throat> in like the MCO, like second edition from like 1988 or whatever. And I was like, oh, this opening looks like it has a cool name against the queen pawn. I'll play the Slav. But with D, like semi-Slav with E6, DC4 or... Go Pauls. This is way too advanced for me. He just told you he knew no theory. Go Pauls. Here's how my here's how the Slav went for me. Here's how the Slav went for me. D4, D5, C4, C6, Knight C3, Knight F6. Look and see what they do. And then if it looks like you can do it, I just move my light square bishop out somewhere. Like no. Right, exactly. That's that was that was the level of my opening knowledge back in. 1998. So if you play queen c2, you're kind of uh, screwed there, eh? Well, I mean, uh, you know, then then if they do queen c2, then I might do like g6 or something. You know? <laughs> Go, Paul. Be nice. I know. And my black opening, I actually was probably the opening that I knew the best was the dragon. So I played the what? dragon. Pete, I was so about nice. to say that. I wish I'd beat you to it. When you said Slav, I was literally going to say, you know, Pete, I thought you were going to say the dragon because the dragon to me feels like the black counterpart of King's Gambit. They have the same flavor to me. Yeah, and my whole goal whenever I played the dragon was just to, to sacrifice something on C3 or B2. It's like every move that I would make. Something. You would see, <laughs> yeah, every move that I would make in the opening, you would see like, okay, that move is trying to line up <laughs> a sacrifice on C three or B two. Like if you go back and look at at the games, have you guys? So like I I find that really interesting because the dragon was definitely my emo defensive choice uh, when I was in high school, and arguably maybe at my peak emo youth. But um, I believe I was really influenced by the Chris Ward books. Do you remember that red book, Winning with the Sicilian Dragon? I think when you were in high school, they were on like maybe edition one or two. I'm trying to remember if I read any opening book whatsoever other besides than the MCO edition besides MCO. I don't think I did. Swag. I think that was the only opening book that I read. I got you. I think I, and I remember the Slav one, Pete. 
Gopal, you'll really know the Slav was in that MCO. You'll really get a kick out of this story. Gopal. Oh, you said MCO. I didn't catch that. Yeah. You, Gopal will enjoy this one. So I remember I was playing in a Chicago Open. Probably 1998-ish. And uh, I, was, I was like 15. And I was rated about 1,500. And in the final round, um, I was winning my section. I was winning my section. I don't remember. I, I think it was the... I might have even been lower rated than 1,500. I think it was the under 1,400 section. Nice. So I was like 13-something <clears throat> rated. And I was winning the section. I had like... Uh, I was tied for first. Uh, I think I had six out of six, and the other guy had six out of six. And if we draw, we split first place money. And I had seen games that he played in earlier rounds, and I saw that he was opening every game with black with pawn to g6 on the first move. So to prepare, I was like, I, I don't know what this pawn g6 on move one is. Like, shouldn't you play c5 first and play a dragon like a normal human being? Yeah. <laughs> so to prepare, what I did is I went and I found my copy of the MCO that I had that I had brought with me. And I just like looked up g6 on move one, and I was like, oh, this opening is called the modern defense. And then I modern or robot defense, I think they called it. And then I like looked up some random line and I was just trying to find something that looked like kind of interesting. And I remember the line that I settled on was it was it involved playing pawn to h4 on like move six. Mm-hmm. I was like, yes, that is the one I'm gonna try to play. Okay, so bishop <laughs> three f3. Yeah, something like that. Something yeah. Like that. Yeah. I know Gopal, you have a flirtatious pass with the modern. Absolutely. That's the the verse in me. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, I guess maybe during my adult, I think that was really the start of my adult emo phase when I started playing the modern. What about you, Julia? What, um, in your professional opinion, what, what are some, um, you know, some signs opening wise, uh, you know, that That someone's going through a phase. Well, I, I just think that, something that we've started to do, which is very key to this conversation is we really need to be distinguishing between the different types of emo. So I'm glad Pete that you already kind of touched on that. Nirvana emo was very different than my chemical romance emo. My flavor of emo was, (laughs) I was kind of like a bright eyes emo. Oh, same. Yeah. I've been through that phase. Yeah. I was like a slow, sad emo. Um, I never really got into, you know, Fallout Boy or AFI or all of those sort of quintessential emo bands. Right. What I was like Elliot a Yield emo. That's not really. Emo. Have you listened to Yield? My CP was successful. In the depths of your sorrow. <laughs> oh, no, Yield is so yeah, that's fine. I just hate Pearl Jam. Um, what about Elliot Smith? Oh yeah, oh yeah, yeah for sure, for sure. Elliot Smith, for sure, big Elliot Smith fan. Same, same. Those were the days. Um, so yeah, like what openings kind of fit into the... To me, that is really kind of a <laughs> slower, sadder, truly kind of depressive emo. It feels different, right? Than Dragon or King's Gambit. I'm not totally sure. I, you know, so I remember when I was playing against D4 when I was in my bright eyes emo phase in high school was... um like it was super fashionable before Topalov started slaying his wife. The um, the Queen's Indian is black. Like mm. nowadays, again, it's kind of in a 
like some people would say it's in a slight crisis uh, because of G3 still being critical on move four. Um, but I mean, that the Queen's Indian definitely has like certain emo vibes, as rich of an opening as it could be. But I have a question, and I'm, I'll answer it to start to give you guys an idea. <clears throat> what is your favorite opening phase, like personally, for your life? It's like, you know, we all go through phases where we experiment or we play different things, or maybe our favorite opening phase is like our, where we played our main repertoire and we're extremely successful with it, right? Mm-hmm. Mine, definitely, hands down, the most fun I ever had in the opening was when I achieved the original Life Master title. So, you know, at that point, you get a, you get a floor. You get a floor of 2,200. When you get the original Life Master title, you, can't, you, you have to play 300 games over 2,200 rating, and then you're floored at 2,200. Well, I was like rated 2208 when I got my 300th game. So like, I didn't care. Like no matter what I do, no matter what happens, the worst that can happen to me is I'll lose eight rating points. Like what do you do? Right. So I just figured at that juncture, I was like, I'm going to play whatever the heck I want because like, who cares? And what I did is I started copying the repertoire of, um, this guy named Wayne Zimmerly. So Wayne is a longtime friend. He's from the Peoria area. And he basically doesn't really like care at all about openings. He, he kind of invents his own openings. A good example of the Wayne-ish would be playing the Polish. So B4 on move one, pawn B4. And then if they attack the pawn in any way, so like if they play E5 to attack the pawn, or if they play A5 to attack the pawn, or whatever they do, Knight C6 to attack the pawn, you just push it again to B5. So that's the Wayne-ish opening. So step one is to maintain the Polish pawn. Right. Maintain the Polish pawn at all costs. At all so like, costs. And, I love and then if you play B4, so let's say you play B4, E5, B5, and then they attack it with like C6 or something, then you guard it with A4 or C4. Um, and you just keep that pawn. I'm immediately ob- sold. I might try that later tonight. It's super I'll fun. Show you, I'll show you the version that Jeffrey Zhang has used in Blitz. And like, you could also do it as black. That's always what kind of intrigued me that Wayne never pieced together that you could do the same thing as black. He did. He did sometimes. If you played played D4, he would play B5. But if you played E4, he would play something else. Yeah, see, that's, you know, if you're a real, if you're a real D-Gen, you gotta, you gotta commit to the bit. Um, Wayne had some rules for the opening too, and I followed the rules religiously when I played it. Like, yeah, you you must pawn storm. His rules were, you never castle, and you never move your, you never move your D-pawn. So you leave D2, E3, F2, like as your little king fortress. And then you just throw your G and H pawns at their king and you, and you hope it works out. That, that immediately, Pete, sounds amazing. That sounds up my alley. That sounds like how I want to play chess. I, you need to put me in touch with this man. What's his name, Wayne? Wayne is like, um, uh, like a mendicant philosopher roaming the, the earth. I don't, I'm, I can probably get in touch with them. Maybe I need if, a lesson. Yeah. We'll see. I'll, I'll, I'll reach out to him via, um, Sparrow. So Honestly, what else is there to know? Them. You just gave me the secret sauce. I, yeah. I that's pretty like, much all you need to know. Yeah. Yeah. Wayne really also had another opening that I copied during this same period. So his other opening, this was, um, his more solid opening, according to Wayne. <laughs> I'm so was, <laughs> he would play d4 on move one okay d4 and then against any any response any d4 any his next move would be queen d3 <laughs> now, 
The one exception would be if they play c5 or e5. He okay. said, because then you might have to move the queen twice. So if you go d4, c5. And we can't do queen, that. Right. They take well, it and actually, you have to take with the queen. Well, you could. Like after e5, queen d3, ed4, queen d4, you actually have literally a Scandinavian defense with reverse colors, colors reverse, but no extra, yeah. no extra tempo for white. So it's actually like you you literally are playing the black side. Like so in, what, uh, my article on time loss in the opening. What he would do, and and as I recall, the, the way he described it was it was a matter of a matter of feel. Is he would either <laughs> he would either take the pawn c five or e five and then play queen d three, or he would push his d pawn and then play queen d three. So it was d four any queen d three, with one caveat against c five or e five. It was d four c five e five. You take or push, and then your next move is queen d three, no matter what. And the way he would play it is he would go queen d3, knight c3, bishop, the dark square bishop goes out somewhere and castle queen side immediately. I thought and he did castle. What, what, what happened to the no well, castle? This is, not, this is not the Polish. This is not the Wainish Polish. Oh, okay. So that this is, remember, this is more solid. This is more solid. Oh, <laughs> Pete, I totally forgot that this was the solid one. Okay, let me write this all down. Yeah. There you go. Now you, now you know how to play this entire repertoire. Sick. So uh, unfortunately, what happened was I like one of I actually won a bunch of games playing this repertoire, <laughs> and then Dangerous. my rating right, but then my rating got high enough to the point where I was like I should probably start playing seriously again because I don't want to drop all the way back down to twenty two hundred again. You know, I was like twenty two forty or whatever. So then, what did you switch to? I don't even remember. I think I started playing the English. <laughs> Which is a really weird thing for me. Smithlock, Indian, English, yeah, that sort of thing. I've really tried with the English, Pete. um, And every time I start to study it again and play it a little, JJ negs me and is like, don't play the English. It's not for you. So I haven't really gotten to see what I can do with C4. Yeah, why play the... Yeah, what... what, uh drew you to the English. I also think that was definitely in my emo phase for sure. Yeah, I know exactly what drew me to the English, Gopal, was that I just hated playing the Sicilian as white. And this is how you and I ended up in this conversation about playing open Sicilians because all I really played against Sicilians for a long time was C3. And I just hate those games. It's not the character of play I really like in chess. So I'm still kind of trying to figure out what I like against C5, but you know, um, our, our recent conversation, Gopal made me feel more excited about some ideas and I, I really do just have to get over this hump because apparently I'm not allowed to totally switch from E4 to C4 just cause I hate C5. That's what JJ told me. You know, E4, C5, B4 problem solved. Yeah. Or it, it, you can't say that to me cause I'll A3. do it. Do it. It's actually not bad. Like Don't it's pretty me solid. Don't for A3, Gopal. I think that there's something to it. Why no, play no, no, A3 no, when is. you can play B4? No, right? there is. But if you care about your long-term development, you should just bite. You have to bite the bullet at some point. E4, C5, B4. Like. I'm sold. Then I wrote it. A3. I wrote it down. Yeah, you to can play B, A3 a move B4. later. Um, right, Gopal? Just play A3 a move later after B4. After you commit to B4 already, just plan right. all your moves after that around it. Right. I love it. Pete, I'm well, sold. I, yeah. I mean, spoken like a true adult improvement. Um, <laughs> How anyway, dare so, you? <laughs> uh, Who you know, said I'm improving? Is, I've been plateaued for like a year. Oh, I wasn't talking about you. Um, but uh, this is actually like... I only improve when I play, Gopal. I haven't played for a long time. <laughs> 
Yeah. Although I did just this like in rapid. You know what? Just this last week, I achieved my highest ever chess.com blitz rating. And I've been playing on chess.com for like, I don't know, since they started. What is that? Almost 20 years too? So I guess I am an adult improver because at the age of 39, I reached my highest ever rating. You definitely are, my friend. What's wrong with me? Can I start being an adult regressor? How do I do that? (laughs) You just put that in your Twitter bio. Yeah. Oh, that's a great thing we should start. Adult regressor. Um, But, you know, it's it's really funny. Like, there are a couple of things I want to touch on. So, like, uh, Julia, what you were saying um, about your results with the white pieces, like, it's, I had a period in 2013 where with black, I had a performance uh, over the course of the year of like 2,600. Uh, with black, but with white, it was really bad. It was almost like, um, it was like, like 2250, like barely 2300. Mm-hmm. And I was trying to square that up. And, you know, Grandmaster Dmitry Gurevich, um, he said something like, it's, it's very easy to get in trouble with white, you know, because if you want right. to be ambitious, like it's, it's like trying to, you know, do too much with your serve in tennis. Um, yeah, I like that. Like that. And uh, Kamsky, by the way, the way he got involved with the London system was um, he basically, again, had like disastrous results as white for like some of the reasons we're talking about. And so um, his dad asked him, well, you know, maybe since you can't play the white pieces at all, think about certain positions that you like with black. So he he played the uh lasker defense to the ready so like knight f3 d5 g3 yep. like this type of ready but with c6 bishop f5 so essentially reverse london right uh he played that very well and so he decided to develop that as white um yeah that was yeah that's definitely one thing nice so then what should i do gopal you should bite the bullet and play the open Sicilian. <laughs> <laughs> I will. I swear. I will. It's the next on my. It's the next on my list to conquer. It really. What do you, curr- oh. what do you currently play, Joy? Against the Sicilian. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um. Yeah, it's a good question. I I am currently trying to play more opens. JJ had sent me some stuff on two a three that Gopal's making fun of me for, but I kind of like it. No, I I sh- I probably showed him the idea yeah that's actually that's probably true um and before that pete i was mostly playing uh i liked c3 but i kind of played a delayed alapin um so i would put my knight on f3 first kind of see how black played it and then play c3 even though you still play c3 anyway yeah (laughs) (laughs) i know well the reason that i started playing that uh, I don't know if I want to say this, but I'll say it. Uh, I started playing that because that is something that Daniel Naroditsky plays a lot. Um, and I grew up on Danya's Twitch stream. So. But usually like knight f3, e6, c3, right? Or would he do it knight f3, d6 as well? Um. Yeah, I don't know. It kind of depends. I mean, it's nice that you can wait and see what black plays and see how you respond. So yeah, but I mean, sometimes, yeah. Because, yeah, like these days, it was like when like when I was in high school, like a young whippersnapper, like <laughs> night C6, C3 was rather popular. Um, okay. And it's getting popular now as people are seeking alternatives to going into the Sveshnikov, for example. And then yeah, E6, C3, super topical uh, again. Yeah. Um, but yeah, those were always the two cases where you'd see people like uh, 
kind of like make their exception for a C3. Yeah, JJ tried to sell me on the Sveshnikov as well. And and we had some funny games. And and I really did try to give it a go, but oh, structures feel so non-intuitive too, to me. It's too I, rigid, I think. Yeah, I had a really hard time. I never that never actually I never felt like that really gelled with my style. I had a I had a lot of trouble with it. I recommend to people often to develop like some sort of opening uh philosophy, like based that's more concept based and not I, based necessarily on lines. I so feel not, like, like married just yeah, but like, I feel like, know, Opal, I've just within the last couple of months even have finally started really doing that and kind of figuring out, okay, here's how to articulate what I kind of like and what really is my style. Right. Exactly. Like, you know, yeah. I, I think for instance, we might be kindred spirits in the sense that like, I always prefer to have a very flexible palm structure. So like naturally yes. I've preferred those small centers like E6, D6, like in the Skivany, in the Taimanov, the Connor, you know, maybe it's because love the con. I'm averse. Or <laughs> We're hedgehog girls. Yes. <laughs> totally. And I, it, it's just weird things that I don't even know why I gravitate towards it. Just kind of realizing that when I get these positions, I feel happy. And in other positions, I feel more lost, but I realized I really like kingside pushes and, I just love to push my F pawn. There's these things that for some reason call out to me. So I need to just develop a play style that lets me do that appropriately and not inappropriately. Swag. It's interesting because like one thing that I think about is like the more that I've improved, the more I recognize how it's important to recognize where you're comfortable in a game. Like what, yeah. what sort of things you are present, present in a game that you're comfortable with and that you feel like I understand this and I can play it well, mm -hmm. but it's equally important, like not to, not to play only to your style or, or too much to your style. Like there, you have to have a degree of like amorphousness to your game. You have, you have to be able to, sometimes the position calls for playing a structure you're not comfortable with, or sometimes a position calls for, you know, calls for things that you may not feel are your wheelhouse well, yeah, per you se. Fight the position. Of course. You do what it wants. Exactly. Exactly. And I think a lot of players, like uh, adult regressors, I think <laughs> a lot of adult regressors get into this mode where they're, they're too concerned with like style or something like that, instead of just, you know, what does the position call? Right. For? It, they, they have some sort of like weird false totally. to connected with that. Right. Like I'm an aggressive player. I don't play boring. Well, you know, I mean, you often find like, okay, so are you... Depends on the position. Like yeah, you might have to. Are every single game? Like, yeah, you know, you might have to. That's not all that chess is, right? And something One of my favorite... Oh, sorry, go, go ahead, Pete. No, no, you go, go, go. I was just going to say, it's also interesting to see what people sort of consider to be aggressive. Because I feel like in the online space, it's always um, trying to find a sharp tactic or making these exchanges and we've talked about this on our podcast as well and it's really interesting when you look at grandmaster games and different um different players who have considered themselves to be really aggressive it it actually can be this really slow positional grind that just kind of chokes out the other player and takes away all of their space or all of their options um so it doesn't feel kind of emotionally aggressive in that way that the tactics feel but it's actually like very aggressive yeah yeah yeah, absolutely. Yeah, so to me, it almost reflects sort of like an immaturity in a play style um, to hear 
to hear people say, oh, I'm really aggressive. I love exchanges and this and that. And it's like, what are you doing? This is just bad chess. What do you mean? Like players below 2000 with bad takes? Like I've never heard of that. (laughs) (laughs) No, no. This would just hypothetically go, Paul, like if someone were to do that. Right. I haven't seen it either. Yeah. Me neither. (laughs) So that's interesting because, you know, um, is it some sort of human need to like categorize yourself or like fit into some descriptor? Right. Because why, why do we do that on, on the surface, you would think, okay, here's a board game. Like we need to understand, you know, how to play the board game and, and yeah, the truth behind it. We need to understand how to, how to approach it when different things appear, right. Different configurations. If you think about it from like a purely like mathematical, like almost sterile perspective, you would just think like, okay, because of the nature of this board game, there are different configurations that could occur where I would have to play in different ways or like manners. But no, those are boring. Yeah. So why do we have this need to categorize them or to like add descriptors to them? It, that, that seems a little strange to me, doesn't it? I think, I think it's largely because, okay, we're going to, a lot of people are going to do that because, you know, they don't see the intricacies nor can they appreciate it, right? Like these types of quote unquote boring positions do have their own very placid beauty and like, you know, to outplay someone from nothing is really just, it's kind of a beautiful thing. Um, but also, uh, to like, I, you know, could it be something to like protect one's ego? Like kind of like what we were just saying, but also as a means of dunking on their opponent, like, Oh, you know, my opponent just, you know, did that. Like they bored me to the, to death, you know, or like, Oh, I hate playing them. They're so dang boring, you know? Yeah, Gopal, I can see that. I also just feel like it's kind of human nature, right? We all sort of do this in life in general outside of chess. Like, we're all kind of asking the question, who am I? And in a way, it might actually... And why um, are we like this? (laughs) Why are we like this, right? So in general, we like categories. We like labels. We like things that appeal to our sense of self. So I think uh, just in terms of, you know, generally... Uh, human nature it does kind of make sense to me i think it's interesting i think because that's one of the things that is appealing to me about chess or like attractive about chess is that it doesn't fit neatly into like a box right um in a lot of ways like there are lots of different positions or or manners of playing or styles you know however you want to call it but also you know, there's the famous quote, you know, chess is both fight and sport and competition and science and art and all this other stuff, right? Like as a, as a concept, even, you know, moving beyond the gameplay and the game itself, like as a concept, it doesn't fit neatly into one box. And that's one of the things that I find most appealing about chess. So I'm always fascinated when people like try to fit parts of it into different boxes, because um, to me, that, that kind of uh, goes against the grain a bit in, in terms of what is appealing right. about it. Even though the intention is maybe to try to like understand it by categorizing it, you know, which I think is like a very classic mistake with less experienced players, like, you know, this over classification, you know what I mean? Yeah, Gobal, it's funny that you say that because the podcast episode that we just released today, we talk about that exact concept, the way that these categories or these heuristics are really helpful when you're first learning how to play chess. and they can be helpful even when you become better or even an expert at chess, but you can't get really good until you start to be able to just look at the board in front of you and contextualize when those heuristics are actually helpful. 
So it really is kind of finding that balance of how much do I want to categorize versus how much nuance do I need to look at a position and say, okay, this is actually an exception to a rule that I've learned, or um, there's some difference in the position that makes that pattern recognition that I have applicable or not applicable. Um, And I think a lot of people don't quite get there. You know, I'll say this, like the when I was, uh, even, even when I was like 2000, um, just like when I was younger, I was always in search of like a perfect system, um, for playing chess. Like there was a, a crazy book I, I've maybe mentioned on a few podcasts called, uh, uh, best, best move or, or something like that by Alexander Sashin. It, it's like a, an algorithm. It really like crackpot stuff, you know? to try to find the best move. And it's like the, all this like mathematical formulas and, and he doesn't even really explain where he's coming up with some of this from, but the examples are interesting. Um, and like, I mean, the best one that I've, I've seen was uh, Dorfman's uh, means of assessing a position discussed in the critical moment and the method in chess. Um, okay. know, he is assessing a position based on like, king position, material correlations, that's not material balance, but like, you know, who like, let's say pair of bishops versus two knights or something like that. Um, you know, yeah, like it, who has a better position after the exchange of queens and I mean, some other stuff, but these things are not like what it, it took me a long time to realize is that these things are not the, you know, the, the final word or, or anything like that but they're just kind of tools to guide you, you know, to, right. to assist you when you're lost. And like, especially, uh, cause like there's more talks of systems in pool in the pool world. Cause everybody wants like a perfect aiming system, but when right. the pressure is high, you don't need an aiming system. You need a delivery system. So, you know, mm. when the pressure is high, these systems are good tools. Um, you know, just sometimes like a lot of stuff out there is not really that good, but to me, it almost provides you a starting point, right? So if we even think yeah, about, um, like as an academic in scientific research, it's it's more of like a hypothesis. Like, hey, here's an idea that might work. You still have to test it, like calculate a little bit, see if it works. You can't really use them blindly. You're going to run into a lot of trouble. Mm-hmm. Yeah, 100%. To, yeah, to blindly apply them, especially in your line of work. Oh, my God. Yeah. Uh, laughs uncomfortably (laughs) 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 truly truly you know it's interesting so i i uh, have been very 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 slowly um working on a chess book and one of the things that i that i did to kind of help frame it is i rewrote the introduction like several times and each time i felt like i got like a little clearer picture of what i was trying to um go for and the word that kept coming up was the was synthesis. And the idea is like how you, you know, how do you put these things together? How do you how do you synthesize your like your your knowledge and experience um into into like actually being able to play this very complex game, right? Um and part of that, I think, you know, you guys kind of hit it on the head is you have to be able to like you have to be able to test, you have to get that feedback. You have to be able to like do and receive feedback on it. It's very hard to just like in a vacuum improve, right? You have to actually have a a feedback loop or whatever they call it. 
Yeah. And sometimes I feel like that's why, especially for people who are closer to the beginner stage of chess, gravitate so much towards opening prep and studying openings because you almost don't have to do that really deep critical thinking and the trial and error and the test and read test. You can, it it feels more concrete, right? You can learn the lines in your lead chess study or on chessable um, and, and you don't have to really dig too deep. Right. It's the most tangible form of chess improvement because that's something you can like use today. And yeah, like you said, you don't have to do any critical thinking. um, You know, that's interesting because students are always super confused why I don't want to work on openings with them. (laughs) It's like, you know, there's so much more important things to know right now at your level. You don't need to be memorizing 30 lines of theory or 30 moves of theory, but I'm like always equally confused, like why they would even want to do that. (laughs) Like, or maybe you know what I mean? Do. Like, yeah, but Pete, it makes perfect to sense to me. No, yeah, the way you describe <laughs> the way you described it, that makes sense. Like, I finally yeah. have an explanation. I can kind of understand to some degree, like why why is this even appealing? You know, like, why does this seem like something you should be doing right now? It takes out so much of the uncertainty. It makes people feel big brain, right? I can memorize thirty lines of theory. Uh, I can memorize 20 moves out in this variation. I mean, who cares that I'll never see this variation and it's not actually helpful? But when I click through my Chessable feels good, right? So they're getting that little dopamine hit, if nothing else. Right. Like that's um, you know, that's that's another thing I think about is, you know, in like in sports, let's say like you learn a new move, right? You can you can go test that out in, in the very next game. You know what I mean? Yeah. Uh, like like a, an example that comes to mind is like the, the a soccer, a soccer way of the the step over or the the croif or whatever it's called. Um but in chess, like you might learn 20 moves of theory and you might not have a chance to use that for like eight tournaments, you know, cause nobody's cooperating and playing into it. So it's like a weird, it's like a weird way of, of learning this, these techniques and applying them. Um, and also you might just show up and the dude plays like queen D3 on move two. <laughs> I know that's what you should be doing with your students, Pete. I was thinking just teach them the Wayne method and say, until you get a grasp on that, we're not He's learning done. any theory. Don't do that. <laughs> <laughs> okay, fine. <laughs> yeah, but then they then they run into something like d4, b6, queen d3, bishop a6, and then, you know. Oh, and then they're like control. And then they like have a. Four. No, yeah, they have like some kind of right. weird like meltdown. I don't know. <laughs> My queen okay. is under attack. Pete, just so you know, I do have to leave. I have a patient at 4.30. Unacceptable. So. Their patient will be fine. <laughs> All right. Start the final part or... Yeah, sure. Julie, do you have time to do a 24-game chess match with us between the dude and Ricky Bobby? Let's do it. Okay. All right. So uh, this is a segment we've done um, every month for the past few months. We basically just have two hypothetical players uh, as if these players could learn and play play chess, which in some cases, for example, we had Michael Scott as one of the participants. It it wasn't entirely clear that he would be successful. learning the game and playing a match <laughs> uh, or at least finishing the match. Right. So uh, today's matchup was uh, suggested by one of Gopal's students. So Gopal, you want to drop us in here? Uh, yeah. So uh, Dr. Skull. Um, Great name. Dr. Kevin Skull. Yes, absolutely. Um, he suggested to us a 24 game, a game match between uh, what is it? Also, also the enemy of the podcast, by the way, he has his own, podcast or chess improvement journeys but uh anyway so the matchup was 
the dude from the Big Lebowski versus Ricky Bobby from Talladega Nights. So Julia, gut instinct, take it away. Who wins? 24 game match. The dude. Oh, no hesitation. The dude. Okay. You have no concerns over the dude. Maybe, I don't know, being a little lazy, not necessarily like preparing a whole bunch. I have a lot of concerns. Like missing the round because he shows up over an hour late. You're not, you're not worried about that? No, no. I'm very, very worried about that. But you're taking him anyway. Why? Yeah, for sure. Um, all these concerns that you're bringing up, Pete, um, about how the dude might kind of underperform and not be trying hard enough. Um, I think it's clear that Ricky Bobby will be trying way too hard and going too fast. He will burn out. It will be a self-sabotage. Okay, interesting. So the, the, the deficits that the dude may possess might cost him a round or two here or there. But because of the format, the 24-game format, yes, we think long-term he will manage to do just enough to overcome his deficits and, and show up just enough times to let <laughs> Ricky Bobby sort of burn himself out, hang himself, let's say. I, I think in general, it kind of just reflects a chess philosophy that I have, which is really do less. Um, I think trying to do too much on the board when you're new to the sport, if you will, is a recipe for disaster. Ricky Bobby is going to be I trying agree. to play Queen H5, and he's we're, we're going to run into trouble. That's a good point. He probably would go for stuff like that. He's going to play the fried liver every chance he gets. We know that. Even when it doesn't, uh, <laughs> like E4, E6... Knight of three, three. D5, <laughs> Bishop C4. Snap, what do I do here? So would yes. you say it would be a case of, I mean, because we didn't get talk about the margin of victory necessarily. Like, mm. would you say it's it would, it would be a case of um, the dude limping over the finishing line or is he like, you know, going to bust down that front door and and take it like that? I don't know. Pete, what do you think? I'm honestly deciding whether or not I'm taking the dude. Gopal, I want to get you on the record. Are you taking the dude in this matchup? No. <laughs> I didn't think so. I'm That's I'm like horrible. kind of on I'm kind of on the fence. So I wanted to get Gopal I, on the record. I You're mean, taking Ricky Bobby? Yeah, dude. This movie is a dude the dude. You know, here's vibes. here's something I think that Let's is kind of up. in the dude's favor. Like, you know, the dude has this very like bohemian lifestyle, right? He's kind of just like, you know, he's the dude, right? And chess is definitely a game that kind of fits that lifestyle, right? Like I could see if you think about mm -hmm. like the dude's apartment, I could see him having like a chess set set up somewhere, you know, maybe with like a correspondence position on it or something like it's within, it's within the range of outcomes that the dude learned chess at some point in his life and maybe plays it from time to time while enjoying a, a you know, a, a beverage, let's say. Let's say another thing in the dude's favor that you're forgetting, Pete, is that Ricky Bobby is an idiot. Yeah, that's kind of the elephant in the room, right? Like, <laughs> that's a good point. But he does have some competitive experience. So, like, he knows what Very you know, there's something to be said. Yeah, sure. there's something to be said for, um, 
I mean, I don't, I guess I don't know too much about car racing, but it seems like a, an individually competitive sport, right? Like where you're the driver. I know you have a team and the, you have like the dudes that like change your wheels. And this shows how little I know about car racing. Um, but generally speaking, like when you're doing the thing, you're the only person doing the thing, right? You're not like passing the car to somebody else. Like you're the driver, you're the one who's doing it. And chess is kind of very similar. Like you're, you're the driver, right? Like you're behind the wheel. You're so there's some kind of like, individual competitive aspects that might transfer that's kind of what i'm thinking about about how i'm thinking about this matchup i think i i lean the dude but only slightly like i would give him like maybe in a 24 game match it would be decided on like game 23 right because dude would have like a couple forfeits here and there for no show so i would go something like what would that be like 11 and a half, 10 and a half or something. I don't know. Does that add up to 20? That's not, that's 20. Yeah. So like, yeah, he's going to, yeah, maybe not necessarily limp over the. That's not even more than 12. So yeah, it would be, it would be like 12 and a half, 12 and a half, 10 or something. Yeah. Maybe stagger over the line. Go Paul. Yeah, exactly. I think so. If I had to choose, you know, between an underachiever and an, uh, a pseudo overachieving moron. I, I I think I I think I'm with you, Pete. I'm just gonna. I'm not putting my eggs in Ricky Bobby's basket. Is anyone? Go Paul. I mean, I will because I. I Go Paul will movie. drop those eggs right in, in fact, Ricky Bobby. In fact, I I <laughs> hate this movie so much that I I actually came up with another 24 game match. Hmm. If we could do this one on the fly, and okay, is, okay, so this will be quick. And okay, so just for the record, two to yeah. one, the dude. Yeah, for okay. Sure. I mean, but mine is mostly out of spite, so don't understand my opinion. Yeah. Because We're you not. hate Talladega Nights, go Paul. No, because I hate uh, uh, what is it? The Big Lebowski. Big Lebowski. Yeah, whatever. Yeah. Yeah. The Great Lebowski. You know what though? That did, did have what was that actor's name who I really like? Was it like Philip K. Wilson or whoever? Jason Statham. No, 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 no. That's not who I'm thinking of. You, you know who I'm thinking of, right? Is that his name? Is it, I've got to Google this. Go on, go, Paul, with your matchup. Like, Diesel. Um, Philip K. Dick. Is that his name? No. No, that's the no. author. No, that's yeah. the I do, but I do have two authors, actually. So <gasps> oh, I can't these wait. are the first two that, that just came to mind. Charles Bukowski mm. versus Oscar Wilde. Oh, Oscar Wilde. Game, game match. Sorry, am I supposed to think about it? Oscar I mean, Wilde. That's, uh, okay, that's legit. I don't know what I'm supposed to think. To me, this feels like, okay, Bukowski is like the guy who thinks he would be really good at chess, right? Because he has the aesthetic and he's the beatnik and he has the bohemian style and he's all brooding and smokes his cigarettes. And yeah, I would be so intellectual. I would be good at chess. And that's just not enough. And in fact, I think it's a hindrance. Uh, He would just expect to be good at it. Um, and, and I don't think he has the raw intellect. Oscar Wilde is an artist. Come on. This man, um, has some real flair, no competition. That's true. But I mean, we have to think about this in terms of the opening theory. Like I'm looking at the timeline of his life, right? 1854 to 1900. I All mean, right. this is kind of like near the, I believe the tail end of Morphe's career, if you, you know, and then. Like, I think he died the same year that Steinitz did. So he he really did see a lot in terms of the revolution of uh, chess understanding, like mm-hmm. through 
the time of yeah he would have some of steinet's theories so that might be enough i mean for all we know oscar wilde would be sleeping with paul morphy and have the best second you can imagine so first of all philip seymour hoffman was who i was thinking of (laughs) (laughs) i had to look that up i love him i think he's a great actor um uh was a great actor um but I would take Wild 2, and I think Julia hit the nail right on the head. It's so hard to get better at chess when you have like expectations about how something is or should go. Um, I think one of the most difficult challenges as a chess teacher is if you have a student who has developed like bad habits over a period of time. Because the first thing you have to do is you have to like assess those and help them like recognize them. Um, and it can be a huge hindrance to learning if they if they keep falling into the same bad habits or allowing the same um, expectations to sort of like get in the way of like real improvement. And I imagine that's even more difficult, Pete, when there's ego involved, like, right. And then when you couple that, when you couple that with like the, yeah, exactly. But I kind of, I don't know, like it's like Bukowski has a certain wittiness, right? It's, it's definitely different than like Oscar Wilde, but I would say it's also you know, definitely a stark contrast to who I think would be Bukowski's second during the match. Uh, one, Mikhail Tal. Interesting. <laughs> yeah. I mean, if, they, if Tal agrees to that, then I guess that's, that's makes it a very formidable well, see, team. This is the thing. I mean, like Bukowski born 1920, died 1994. I mean, you have to think like this guy, he, you know, he saw like the hyper modern era or like he's, you know, whatever he has that information. And then like, Botanique, Fisher, and like there's so many interesting changes that went on. Um, he even saw the like the Fisher Spassky match from 1992, you know? Right. So with Tal as a second man, uh, I don't know that like don't underestimate that, but like you kind of get this feeling, right? That uh Oscar Wilde would work pretty hard at the board. Uh, what are the odds asking. that this match devolves into some kind of like physical altercation? At some point? <laughs> it depends. Are are they are they going through a sober phase or? I mean, I don't think we can know, right? So that's sort of part of the equation. And if we had to predict, the answer for both of them is probably no. So I actually think the odds of a physical altercation are relatively oh, high. high. Right. Tempers flaring. So maybe the, the result of this is like some kind of like adjourned adjourned 24 game match due to <laughs> it could be like the sequel to the illusion defense. <laughs> they both need to get bailed out to finish the match. Exactly. Okay. Are we going on record with an official pick or are we just going with that? Uh, I always do it like Yeah. So you guys seem like pretty heavy on, on uh, wild. I mean, I kind of want to agree, but with Tal as Bukowski's second, like I am going to say Bukowski just because of that. Again, it's not even anything. What makes you think that Tal would ever agree to be this uh, degenerate second? Um, I mean, their interests, their mutual interests, right? Like what was that famous Tal quote? Like I drink, I smoke, I chase women, but postal chess is one vice that I don't have or something like that i feel like that's something that you could you could easily hear from henry charles bukowski i could see that that's like the only reason why i think you know i just i just see his ego getting in the way 
Oh yeah. Okay, so it sounds yeah, like sure. Julia for sure is leaning is coming down on the on the wild side, right? Big time, big yes. time. Take a walk on the wild side. Go, Paul. Where are you at? <laughs> um, I'm gonna take a walk on the bumpy side. If I'm referring to Bukowski due to the warts that he had on his face throughout his life, so yeah, I'm gonna go with him for the reasons stated earlier. So this is a really difficult one for me because I actually 100% agree with Julia's analysis for the reasons already stated. However, I think back to a previous matchup we had on the show, Julia, where we did the Terminator up against John Wick. Oh, and one of the things, yeah, that was a fun one. One of the things that we kind of um, allowed into play there was the Terminator's uh, sort of futuristic knowledge and access to machines and computers. Okay, okay. And so even though I think both of our hearts were with Wick, I think we ultimately decided he would have the edge because of that advantage. And Gopal's right, it's pretty hard to ignore basically a century's worth of like chess advancement and improvement that Bukowski would have access to. But but we also have to remember um, that he would have to utilize that technology and be motivated and disciplined and... Uh, really put in the put in the hours to utilize it um this was someone who is drinking very heavily i'm not convinced i mean with with michael tal like you know i'm sure he can probably snap him out of a vendor or like show him at least how to do it properly (laughs) i it's tough i mean i i like i said i completely agree with julia's analysis um but i think one of the themes that i think is sort of flowing through these matchups when we discuss them is like the the, the power or the advantage that having access to um, newer information presents. Sure. So that's what makes this a really difficult one for me. I mean, how much, how, how much, how focused would he have to be to, to actually make this a, a realistic, tangible edge in a match? That's a very good point. That's a good question. I think I slightly lean Bukowski just because of that, but it's very close for me. All right. It's too bad we'll never know. I really we'll never think, know. I know. I really think you guys would be embarrassed when my my wild side. You know what we need? We need. Do you ever see the show Futurama? You ever see that show? Yeah, yeah. You know how they had like all the heads preserved in the glass with like yeah. the name. Oh, oh man, that's what we need. We need that case of twenty four games. Yeah, match. we do need right. that. We need that technology. We would also need the time travel technology to to get the heads, but. Minor detail. Minor detail. <laughs> that, that's all we'll minor that inconveniences. And of course, once we have all this great technology, there is no better use for it than going back <laughs> in time. To answer these questions. Grabbing these random people throughout history and forcing them to play chess against each other. <laughs> whether they like it or not. Well, Julia, this has been a lot of fun. Thanks, thanks for coming and talking with us. I'm so glad we answered all of these very important questions, like <laughs> what to do with your Stouffer's lasagna. <laughs> yeah, thanks for having me. This is the best. You guys are the coolest. So um, for Gopal Menon and Julia Rios, this is your host, Pete Karianis on the Chess Underground. Julia, this has been awesome. Thank you. Yeah. Bye, guys. Love you. Bye. Thank you for listening to the Chess Underground, a U.S. chess podcast. Please check out our entire suite of podcasts, which release every Tuesday, and include Ladies' Night with Jen Shahad, as well as Chess Life cover stories and One Move at a Time with Dan Lucas. U.S. Chess would like to thank Jason Andre at Seven Season Films Photography and Media for a podcast production and editing. 
If you are starting your own podcast, visit www.7seasonfilms.com for consulting, production, and editing. Until next time, signing off, Pete Karyanis. <laughs> <laughs>